This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. Governor J.B. Pritzker surveyed the damage at that Amazon warehouse in Edwardsville yesterday. Three days earlier, six people were killed. Uh, Pritzker was flanked by local and state officials, and he was uh, wondering about the building codes. So it makes us wonder, I have to say, and I've spoken with the legislators that are here too, uh, about whether or not we need to um, change code based upon the climate change that we're seeing all around us. Uh, but, But suffice to say that that's something that we're deeply concerned about to make sure that code is where it ought to be. Well, that's what we expect out of our politicians, and politicians are very reticent to say because it would come off as insensitive. Sometimes really bad things happen to good people, and for no logical reason. But that's not an acceptable answer. Jeremy Gorner is a Chicago Tribune reporter. He covers state government. You know, Governor Pritzker was asked about this event in Edwardsville, obviously, and he's saying what all politicians say at this time, and he kind of reminds me of Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste. I mean, you have to look like you're concerned. And are they really concerned that a company as big as Amazon might have built a fulfillment center that wasn't up to building codes? I mean, that can't really be a question, is it? Well, I mean, this is just as an observation, John. What I'll tell you is that um, it's obviously a legitimate thing to look at the building codes, you know, anyway, because of any natural disaster. But, you know, one of the things I noticed is that the south side of the building, there was a big gaping hole in the south side of the building. You could see the beams, you know, the, the you know inside of the building. I mean, it, it was it looked like it did a lot of damage. There's a there's a building next to it um, on the Amazon campus there that looked like there was no damage to that. And then the press conference was um, in a nearby town, uh, uh, Pontoon Beach. Right across the street from the police station is another Amazon facility, which was untouched. So obviously it looked like there could have been, I mean, I'm, I'm not an engineer, but it's definitely something that it's almost a given that it's what they're going to look at, whether it has anything to do with climate change. I kind of took that as, the, you know, he was just talking about the frequency of tornadoes in general, but I can, but, you know, tying it into like the structural damage of, that particular building, um, I really, yeah, that, that wasn't something that I personally was, you know, reporting on or took, took, took that to, to, to mean one thing related to the other. I, I mean, it was kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Just back to the, the, the adjacent building, was that perhaps built out of brick? That's a good question. I'm not sure exactly. They looked like they were, they looked very alike. And um, it was kind of hard to get close to, both of them just because uh you know police were kind of keeping us away a, a little bit of a ways away but yeah uh, jeremy gorner was covering the uh, governor yesterday uh, as a investigate along with osha the amazon warehouse where six people died so osha's on this they must be absolutely overwhelmed since last friday i know that the building did not have a basement but amazon provided some sort of windowless take shelter area on the north side right. which was the exact wrong side unfortunately to be at right. uh, with the randomness of tornadoes i don't know how you predict that but i understand that the let me ask you uh were the amazon employees allowed to have their phones as they were working that seems to be a point of contention 
at the press conference, I mean, Amazon officials were saying that, um, you know, one of the things that they were, um, you, you know, one of the things that came out of it that, is that perhaps that there were some employees that maybe had their phones hacked yeah. away because that's just like a routine during their shifts. Um, I was, as far as over the weekend, I know I did see some reports there were some disputes about what Amazon Yeah, there always is. There's always a lot of disputes when it comes down to the uh, work rules at Amazon Fulfillment Centers. Jeremy, thanks so much for your time. We'll read more in the Chicago Tribune. I appreciate it, sir, and uh, and uh, I appreciate you jumping on at short notice here this afternoon. By the way, you can reach out to the Salvation Army, the American Red Cross, or Edwardsville Community Foundation Relief Fund. We will post the links to all those organizations. They are spearheading the efforts uh, downstate for the tornado victims. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Clash of the big-time, big-money titans at the Chicago City Council hearing yesterday. As uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, we already played Jerry for you, Rocky Wartz and Tom Ricketts, they want their big-time piece of the action. This ordinance will create hundreds of jobs, millions of dollars in tax revenues, let us in. So uh, what's uh, being discussed here is the fact that part of the bill that Pritzker signed almost a couple years ago at this point means that sports betting will be allowed at the major venues here in town. In other words, uh, talking about uh, both ballparks, Soldier Field, I think uh, the United Center, everything but the Wind Trust Arena. So we heard from uh, Ricketts. Let's hear from Rocky Wirtz. Allow us to put into practice sports betting facilities that the legislature and Governor J.B. Pritzker already provided. But once Chicago's casino is built, the city would get 20% of casino revenue, which would be used to supposedly pull down Chicago's pension debt. And Neil Bloom, who has a major interest in casinos, including displays, he's none too happy about the additional competition. The city could lose 10 to $12 million per year and potentially make the new Chicago casino less successful. Uh-oh. So let's start there and get to analysis from Chris Altruda. He's an analyst for the Better Collective, and I read him at SportsHandle.com. Chris, welcome back to WDL. So it was no surprise that this passed out of committee. What do you anticipate at the full council meeting tomorrow? Hi, John. Thanks for having me back on. What should happen, or likely to happen, is that Chairwoman Mitz will announce that the ordinance is out of committee, and it would seem likely it could be brought up for a full vote. I actually have been asking around because I'm not really familiar with the automatic process for city council meetings, but I am told what could potentially happen is that there will likely be a roll call asked about the, to pass the ordinance given the fact that it was 19 to 7 coming out of committee. And should the roll call be requested before the roll call is taken, Two aldermen can orally request to have what's called a defer and publish, which would then move the ordinance to the next scheduled meeting. You are allowed to do defer and publish only once. At the same time, the mayor then has the option to adjourn the meeting and then call one as soon as 48 hours after the fact to allow for open records. So conceivably what could happen is the bill comes up, there's a request to defer, Mayor Lightfoot adjourns the meeting, Mayor Lightfoot then calls for the next meeting to be as early as Friday. In reading your piece and others, it looks like one alderman is already 
essentially saying, tap the brakes on this, and that's Brendan Riley. He wants more time to study the feasibility of if, in fact, the sports books at the stadiums would degrade the profit potential at the at some point in the near future, the Chicago Casino. And if you have Riley already saying that, it's just a, a short hop to get one more alderman in there. Right. I think Alderman Beal would be the most likely candidate if for, for a second, given he has been opposed to the timing of the ordinance. He has been on record saying he supports the idea of the ordinance. He does not like the timing going up against the casino. He, in fact, rerouted this to the committee when Alderman Burnett brought it up in July originally. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And what happens to Wintrust Arena if, in fact, this gets passed? They, what, they get grandfathered in somehow? No, Wintrust has... Wintrust has a separate procedure that is one step away from completion. So when the Sports Wagering Act was passed, there was an attendance capacity that Wintrust did not meet. I believe the state law calls for a minimum capacity of 17,000. Wintrust doesn't have that, but during the legislative veto session earlier in the fall, it was added as part of HB 3136, which is a small omnibus sports betting and gaming package that also includes the ability to wager on in-state college teams, provided you do it in person, and also has a neutral date for remote registration to start March 5th. That bill passed through both chambers overwhelmingly and has been on Governor Pritzker's desk since, I believe, November 22nd, and he has 60 days from that day to sign it, and it's expected he will. So and at that point, Wintrust then becomes eligible to apply for what's called the Sports Facility Sports Wagering License. Got it. Right adjacent to college uh, sports, obviously, so let's not pretend anymore. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot initially supported Bloom's premise that this might uh, degrade the profitability of a casino, but she seems to have uh, pivoted since. Is that because of the additional 2% to the city from the uh, major stadiums? I think that's some of it. I I know the BAPC said that the projected revenue was 400000 to 500000 per year. I also think the bigger picture with that is not as much the city-based revenue as it is getting the license fee that gets routed through, through Springfield to fund the city projects because the license is $10 million, and that's an, a significant amount of money regardless of how it's cut up. So I think... I think the the money the two percent tax from the adjusted from the revenue that's made at each licensee is an add on so to speak because you have you have the city charging its own licensing fees that will largely go towards the infrastructure that's a, the the revenue tax from the sports books themselves is a little something extra, but I think the license fee and what comes out of that could wind up being more going more towards the capital funds of the projects of this city. Sorry. Ballpark figure, what kind of money is being generated here in the state, not just on gambling, but more specifically on sports gambling? So last month was an all-time high for revenue. It was over, for operator revenue, it was over $52 million, which generated close to $8 million in state taxes for the month. They are over $60 million for this calendar year. They will be over $100 million since launch in March 2020 within the next three months if everything 
keeps pace and given how we, I've seen early numbers in November that have seen all five states who have reported post record operator revenue, which in turn leads to record tax receipts. So it's possible that that near $8 million that was generated in October in state taxes will fall to second place when November's numbers are released. Understood. And finally, since you're into sports betting, uh, who do you like uh, Bears-Vikings next Monday? You got a spread for me? I, I was hoping you had one for me. <laughs> um, I, I'm a Jets fan, so I just wallow in misery to begin with. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I... I don't think the Bears played a bad game for two and a half quarters. I think they just got steamrolled defensively. I think the Vikings, <laughs> yeah, I think can, you're right. Can do that. Can do that if their offense is clicking. But it, you know, the Vikings, you know, somehow aren't quite adept to shooting their own their own selves in the foot. So yeah. it could be a game of misery loving company. I think you're right. So, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's I think it's also one of those games where you have you know two teams with nothing left to lose offensively, where they just may air it out. So in that regard, I would say lean pretty over. <laughs> I would lean towards you over. Absolutely right. Okay. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Chris Altruda, analyst for Better Collective. I read him at sportshandle.com. Thanks much. Always great chatting with you. Take care. Uh, It's Chris Altruda. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Thank you for listening. Much appreciated. Coming up. And I know he's also going to join uh, my friend uh, Ramblin' Ray, who's sitting in for Bruce and Judy this week. Joe Perilla will be here about 520 or so. Gold Coast Exotic Motor Cars owner and part of a smash-and-grab crime. He wasn't. His, he was a victim of it, where they took $2 million in luxury watches from the dealership. This is on Saturday. This is an ongoing issue here in Chicago, and something has to be done sooner rather than later. I don't know exactly what can be done. We were talking to Rob Carr from the Illinois Retail Merchants Association yesterday. What do you advise your members to do? Do they have security? Well, yes, they do, but security, you know, it's the most litigious society we live in, and there are stringent regulations on how you can respond to a property crime in progress as opposed to, you know, stand your ground, self-defense, or what have you. An attack on you is decidedly different in the eyes of the law of somebody just stealing purses from you. And, you know, so what can be done? Do you have to turn every store into a fortress? Well, small businesses, big businesses, neither can afford that, really. Plus, it's rather unappealing uh, to go in there and uh, visit with Santa Claus when you have to go through a metal detector, pat down, show your, show your COVID vaccination card. So what are you supposed to do? And believe me, I'm sure at Gold Coast Exotic Motor Cars, they have significant security already. And we'll take that up with Joe Perillo here in just a few minutes. I'm watching what's going on in D.C. This afternoon, the House is voting on this resolution. I think it's still being debated. To hold former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in criminal contempt, along with Steve Bannon, for refusing to comply with a subpoena. Initially, he started complying because Mark Meadows doesn't have very deep pockets in comparison with even Steve Bannon or others. And, you know, so he just having been legally representative, uh, represented can break you. And he doesn't, he doesn't want any part of that. I uh, get it. Uh, so initially he was going to uh, cooperate. They got a hold of a lot of his texts and his emails and what have you. And then he put the brakes on. And so today, a little bit earlier on, as the House uh, considers 
whether to hold him in criminal contempt. And then it goes up to the DOJ, and we'll see if the AG uh, pursues charges like he has with Steve Bannon. This is the uh, committee chair, Congressman Bernie Benny. I'm sorry, Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, Mississippi, saying when you refuse to cooperate with a congressional investigation, even though your friends on cable news tell you to dig in, that is a violation on the rule of law, and we'll come get you. It's regrettable that we are back to the floor considering another criminal contempt referral. But our former colleague, Mr. Meadows, has left us no choice. Meadows had turned over thousands of documents, including text messages, emails, on his personal cell phones. Liz Cheney, the top Republican on the committee, said some of them were from the president's own son, pleading with Meadows to get his father to call off the riot. And notice how I don't use the word insurrection. It, it did not look like an insurrection to me. That was a riot. Morons. A moronic riot, yes. All amped up on God knows what, but that was a riot, not an insurrection. Uh, also, she read text messages from some of the president's more vociferous uh, defenders at Fox News, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, Donald Trump Jr. She read those not only in committee yesterday, but on the floor today. Here's Liz Cheney. A number of members of the press, a number of members of this body, member, a member of the president's own family, all urged the president take action because they understood that the president of the United States had a responsibility to call off the mob. Cheney also disclosed similar text messages from the Fox News hosts. I mentioned Ingram and Hannity. There were others in there. Meadows argues that the former president did not want him to cooperate in the committee with the committee because it would violate the principle of executive privilege. Well, to have the umbrella coverage of executive privilege, the current president has to invoke that as well. He stood aside and said it was more important for the nation to read the evidence, as uncomfortable as half of the nation may find it to be. And the court backed that up. That's why, well, that doesn't hold. And in the case of Steve Bannon, he was not and had not been a member for the two years before last January 6th. I'm sorry, this January 6th, coming up on the anniversary here. He had not been a member of the executive branch for two years. Trump had fired him two years previous to it, so the executive privilege angle was moot. And, of course, he provided his own evidence via his podcast. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay, It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Guys, what's the update on our guest, Alex? And Andy, Andy Field? You know, he's uh, Eastern Time Zone and we're Central. We've calculated it in, have we? Yes, we did. <laughs> I figured as much. I just thought I'd ask. Because uh, he is generally, Andy Field, as reliable as rain. Of course, with climate change, it's not as reliable as it used to be. All right, well, we'll try to reschedule with uh, Andy Field. Since it is the holiday season, and you may be looking for the perfect mega stocking stuffer, and because it makes me laugh, 
one more time. You watched it on TV. Now you can relive every moment with the Franklin Mint's Heroes of the Coup commemorative coin collection. Beautiful, one-of-a-kind coins, all distinctively handcrafted by American laborers. You'll get Ashley Babbitt, Senator Josh Hawley, the guy who stole the podium, the guy bear spraying a Capitol Police officer, the guy who attacked police with a crutch, the hanging off the Senate balcony guy, the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt guy, and of course, the QAnon shaman, complete with his majestic home. Each coin comes with a certificate of authenticity and is guaranteed to increase in value. Each month, you'll receive a brand new coin to remind family and friends, I'm not just trolling you, I've completely bought into this. Act today and you'll also get this loose side bound piece of the actual feces smeared on Nancy Pelosi's wall on that magical day. And this commemorative Rudy Giuliani syrup dispenser, so you can have breakfast every morning with America's mayor. Don't miss your chance to own a piece of MAGA history. may not resemble actual history. We'll keep our eye on D.C. I'm pretty sure Mark Meadows, obviously, they're going to advance this. All the Dems will vote to do so, hold them in uh, contempt, and there'll be two Republicans alongside, one from Illinois. Since we have some time, let's talk to Mike, the now-retired city worker. Welcome back to the Big 89. Mike, are you enjoying retirement thus far? Yes, I am. I now have the full three hours to listen to your show every day. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I, by the way, I received your very creative uh, lyrics for a potential new theme song. If, uh, if needed, I may use that uh, after the first of the year. And if I use that, uh, how much will you have to be compensated? Uh, cigar. Oh, I'll take that deal every time. You wanted to comment on the moral conundrum. Do we have to put the unvaxxed at the back of the lines regarding ICU beds in Illinois now? Yes, but, you know, I'm going to change it since you changed subjects. The Democrats are still all upset about the whatever you want to call it on January 6th, but it wasn't too long ago when they were cheering on President Obama when he gave pardons to the Puerto Rican terrorists who bombed the Capitol years ago yeah. and killed a couple of policemen. Yeah. They weren't too worried about that. But a bunch of drunks um, looked like a frat house that they were trespassing. I mean, come on. Well, it wasn't an insurrection. It was a riot, and no different than the people marching up and down Michigan Avenue or any neighborhood last summer. You riot, we're going to catch you, we're going to put you on trial. If convicted, we're going to punish you. Similar. Similar. That's my thought process. But less damage was done at the Capitol than on any one of the riots in Chicago in 2020. There was no burning. There was no stealing. I know. Well, well. Well, look, regardless, I hold the capital, I put the capital in a, uh, a, a different category than a, a crate and barrel. But thank you, Mike, and thank you very much for your contributions. Always appreciate it. We have a couple good text messages regarding the moral conundrum that I was discussing. This is that David uh, from uh, Twitter rampage. So it's time just to put the unvaxxed at the back of the line. Big John, the numbers going up in hospitalizations of corona patients is something that was forecasted. It seems as if the focus is on those who are unvaccinated. It's strange that there's nothing being said about the ages of those being hospitalized. Now, you stated that people 65 and older are the ones the Rona is coming for. There needs to be more clarity on the age of the highly infected and not just the unvaccinated. That being said, maybe there should be restrictions on the unvaccinated as putting them at the back of the line for hospital entry. Yet, if the vaccine does what it's supposed to do, there really shouldn't be anyone that's been vaccinated who needs hospitalization well there are some outliers 
but a very, very slim uh, percentage of that. Here's Steve O. all the way back to the uh, governor being uh, in Edwardsville talking about the Amazon building. Till the nature of the tornado has been determined, it's premature for the governor to needlessly call for building code changes. Well, I agree. But never let a crisis go to waste, right, Steve? And one more from Paul. Before the fire and Our Lady of the Angels, uh, a terrible tragedy there, uh, that, 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 that building met Chicago's building code at that time. I guess the conjecture there being that sometimes you have to update building codes as history and experience dictates. Let's go back to the calls. Let's talk to uh, Robin. She's in LaGrange. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the Big 89. Go ahead. Hey there. So 30 years, 30 years I've been listening to 890 AM, and I heard a term the other day, um, you know, broadcast, right, broadcast media. I heard this term narrow casting, and, it, you know, that's the world we live in now, where everything is a tailored message for a really specific audience, and you're going to hear the information that is meant for you, and that's all you're going to hear in today's media. So I just want to thank you for being one of the last broadcasters, because regardless of the side information comes on, you make sure that people are getting information. So I do believe that this may be the only place that your average 890 AM listener is going to have heard those text messages that were sent from Fox News correspondents, because it's certainly not being covered. Uh, it's being over-covered on the, right, on, on the left. It's not being covered at all on the right. And it's just a wacky world we live in that who, what you listen to determines the information that you're, you're, you're fed. But that's really important information to know. And, um, yeah, uh, uh, the Capitol riot is a serious issue. And maybe, maybe more damage is done on Michigan Avenue, but damage to democracy is pretty darn serious to me. Well said, Robin. Thank you very much. Appreciate you listening. Thank you for your contribution. Take care. 517 here at Double Dust. Let's get a check of traffic. And coming up next, we are going to talk, I hope, to Joe Perillo. He uh, runs Gold Coast Exotic Motor Cards, lost $2 million in uh, watches. And uh, I, I, my only question is like, well, are there any leads on who did this? How disgusted are you? What can your security team do? And are you optimistic or very pessimistic about the future of business in Chicago, even the better neighborhoods, River North? So we'll start there with Joe. Coming up next on the Big 89. This is John Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. I wonder if they had a uh, gold-plated Cadillac at Gold Coast Exotic Motor Cars. We welcome Joe Perillo to the program. Joe, I'm sorry to hear about the $2 million in luxury watches that were smashed and grabbed from your establishment last Saturday. Any leads thus far? Well, wait, first of all, let me clarify something. I don't know who gave them the number of $2 million that's been going around. Uh, uh, it's substantially less than that. It's, you know, it's under a million dollars. I know that. And, and I don't know who gave them that information, but we should clear that up with the audience. Okay. Uh, okay, but it's a substantial amount. And by the way, they are not mine. This was, I rent space to uh, the jeweler who sells the, the expensive watches. Yeah. So I, Joe Perillo, uh, wasn't out anything, okay, at all. He's got insurance, but how many times can you go against your insurance company before they don't insure you? Uh, and what's the, what, you know, obviously, uh, you know, premiums. So how, how discussed is it, does this make you and other business owners in the city of Chicago? Not that every neighborhood hasn't dealt with theft at this point, but it seems like 
big-time organized theft, and it seems like nobody can do anything. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, here, here's what happened. I, I, what happened was I wasn't there when it happened. I was coming from uh, my dealership in, uh, in uh, um, Westmont, in the down, down the Grove, actually, and I was unaware that that even happened. And so um, I got there about 45 minutes after that, and the news, uh, um, um, the media was on their way to do the reporting. So I found out 15 or 20 minutes before the news came, and I saw the videos. And I saw the guy with the gun in the videos, and it just angered me so much that someone at... 12 o'clock on a Saturday on a busy day with people in there would have the nerve to come walking into your place. I know some pretty tough guys. I came from a bad neighborhood. And, and I don't know anyone who, who, who would have gone in on a Saturday in broad daylight when the chief of police in Chicago the day before said, we're going to have a, we're going to have a bunch of crew out there. And um, in, in, in the Gold Coast, and uh, they're around the corner, and we're going to prosecute you if you get. We're going to we're going to arrest you, not prosecute. We're going to arrest you. And the next morning, next afternoon, they're there. I couldn't believe the nerve of these guys. And the guy comes in with a gun. And um, uh, as soon as my people saw it, we have uh, five or six uh, gun. Uh, uh, I have, have gun licenses, and I'm one of them. And um, um, they didn't. They, 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 one guy comes and he crashes, and it sounded like a gunshot. Apparently, when 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 he broke the, he brought a hammer with him, and the other guy had followed him in a minute or two later. And he got in position, uh, according to the tape that I saw, he just crashed the window. When my guy saw it, thought it was was gunfire going off, and so they pulled guns out, and thankfully they didn't shoot him because. I'd have probably lost my license. Yeah. Probably in jail myself now. Yeah, that's uh, that's the uh, problem, I, Joe. I mean, that I've discussed this with my listeners a number of times. And my wife is in the retail business. In fact, she used to have a shop years ago. You're on Rush, aren't you? And I, they, I think she used to have. I think she was in the, literally in the same building where your dealership is now. This is many many years ago. But you know, and we have security. We have cameras, but. Uh, uh, not heavy security, but at the same time, you're really not allowed to resist criminals when it's a property crime. And maybe we should rethink those stipulations at this point. Well, the whole the, the bottom line is that, um, and I, I'm amazed. I'm really, I'm not naive, but I was really amazed. I thought it was just happening in Chicago. I thought these things were just happening in Chicago. I'm getting calls from all parts of the United States. My phone is ringing off the hook with people complimenting me. And like I had the courage. What courage does it take? I reported the truth. Yeah. I don't I don't take it as if I had courage to report. I was mad. I was amped up, okay? That they had the nerve to come in here with a gun and, and hold you up and don't care. But the bottom line is why they don't care is uh, uh, they know they know that if they get caught, they just get no bond. They just walk back out. Do you know, I, I was discussing this with Rob Carm. The voice is Joe Perillo. 
Gold Coast Exotic Motor Cars. You know him from years and years here in Chicago. Uh, $100 million worth of watches. Vendor at his place hit on Saturday. Uh, you know, Kim Fox, not that every problem in the city is Kim Fox's problem. That's just, I'm not going to pile on like that. That's ridiculous. But she has raised the threshold for felony shoplifting. This is not You're in armed robbery territory here. But even felony smash and grab shoplifting, uh, you have to be caught nine times at the threshold of $1,000 each be sure, before she even pursues it. Now, she has her own reasons behind that, but that has to be revisited, too, because you're saying the first nine times, even if you're caught with under $1,000 worth of merchandise, you're still not going uh, to be prosecuted. That's a problem. Well, well, the whole thing is, and by the way, any thieves listening, you're better off waiting a few days until the sales go on 50 off because now you can steal $2,000 worth of it. So so now, uh, here's the whole thing. I think, you know, I was really, really hostile, angry against Kim Fox and and, and Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot. And I'm not sure if Mayor Lightfoot is really should be uh, uh, chastised as much as I did uh, in fact, but the point is I think that they're good people uh, it, but, but I think that um, um, they probably feel that these people who are stealing they, if it's under a thousand they don't want a subject and put him in jail they think they're doing a very kind thing to them uh, uh, you know, don't let the poor guy go to jail. Well, let me tell you something. They're thugs, okay? They're thugs. And when you, and I hope my windows don't get broken out tomorrow, but, uh, and, and, and by the way, if you thugs are listening, I don't blame you. You're a player. I blame the game. They're allowing you to do it. They're empowering you to do it. And you're going back and you're telling your friends, guess what? Yeah. We could go and we could steal a thousand dollars worth of stuff, and nothing happens. Yeah. So what they're doing, while they think they're doing something nice for these kids, what they're doing is harvesting criminals. They're they're making these kids lifelong criminals that will either get killed because they're going to put a gun on somebody and someone's going to shoot them, or they're going to wind up in the lifetime in jail. There's I want to guarantee you one thing: they're not going to take the money and go start a business with it, okay? So as soon as that money's gone and they sell their products for a fraction of the money, okay, and then when that's gone, they're going to go back out and they're going to steal again. Yeah. You know, there's two things there are two things here, Joe, and then we'll have to, we'll have to move along because I'm late for news, but uh, two things. It, when you talk about the, the mayor and the state's attorney not wanting to stigmatize young people who uh, run astray of the law, they're not stealing food for the family. They're stealing watches, number one. And, and uh, number two, we have to do something. We have to reconfigure how we are going to pursue shoplifting, not necessarily violent crime, but even shoplifting, because the $1,000 threshold times nine is just too doggone high. I appreciate you popping on here first, Joe. I know you're going to visit with Ray tomorrow morning. And, uh, and I, 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 I hear your pessimism, but hopefully uh, we'll figure out the remedies uh, for this. And the other thing we have to do, frankly, is we've got to stop making the Internet such an easy online pawn shop 
for all the uh, stolen goods. That's where they're selling all of this, and we have to we have to work from that end too to stem this. If they don't have any place to sell it, they won't steal it. Joe, thank you very much, sir. Bye. Take care. Joe Perillo, Gold Coast Exotic Motor Cars, joining us here on the Big 89. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Well, Democratic consultants offered some mixed reactions to J.B. Pritzker's name being floated as a potential presidential contender, noted he has only potentially tough re-election battles to worry about first. I'm not sure how tough it's going to be, but he was asked about this yesterday at the site of that Amazon tornado tragedy. Are you looking to become President of the United States. Look, folks, I, I, I think I've been pretty clear about this. I want to be governor of Illinois. I want to continue to be governor of Illinois. I'm doing the job that I love. Uh-huh. That's not really an answer, is it? I ran for governor. That was a difficult endeavor as well. Uh, and we're going to do it again uh, during this coming year. So, uh, so you know, I've learned a lot over the years. I ran, as you know, for office 20-plus years ago uh, and learned how hard that can be, uh, too. So... Um, look, I'm again, I'm focused on this job and this job alone. They all say that, don't they? Let's start there with Rachel Hinton, Chicago Sun-Times chief political reporter, and joins us, a uh, returning guest here on the Big 89. Rachel, are you buying that, or does that just sound like, well, I'm keeping my ducks in a row and we'll see what happens? Yeah, I think it's really the ducks in a row kind of thing. Um, I think it'd be a bit crazy, yeah, not crazy, but speaking out of turn really to talk about the 2024 or 2028 run when he's up for re-election um but i think that he's putting the ducks in the row now to you know move on to something higher later on further down the road why was he mentioned in the new york times article to begin with did one of his people drop a dime and and try to get in the in 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 the article to generate all this talk or was it just a writer saying i'm just going to throw out names here you know, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, I, I would think that it probably came from his camp or someone in his camp, maybe someone from the New York Times spoke to someone from Pritzker's, you know, campaign staff. Maybe they accidentally said, oh, he's, he's talked about running for president. Maybe he's interested in that, and they decided to run with it. Um, I'm not sure yet. You know, I'm still running that down in the days I have left at the Sun-Times. Uh, but it, it's not clear yet. Uh, I, I do think that right now he's, he's kind of – in a damage control kind of mode um, and trying to really refocus the media's attention on I'm running for re-election, I'm focused on this job, I love this job, I've never had a conversation about it, let's focus on re-electing me for 2022, or in 2022, I should say. I think all politicians love to be the center of stories, I mean, unless they're scandalous. But uh, that being said, this comes with a boatload of trouble, obviously, because now, uh, all the way through the gubernatorial efforts to be reelected and beyond, if he is reelected, even if he's not reelected, when you're sitting on the kind of money that J.B. Pritzker has, now won't every press conference, no matter what the subject matter, end in the question: Are you still thinking about running for president? <laughs> I'm sure he'll he'll get this question a couple more times at least during these press conferences that he has. Um, I, I don't think that this will be the main thing on people's minds. I'm sure that there will be enough other stuff coming out. You know, yesterday, Darren Bailey, a uh, Republican who's running for governor, announced his running mate. I'm sure that we in the media will be focused on that and focused on the Republicans and what they're doing to try to position themselves uh, to, to get the office. 
Um, but but I do think that, yeah, he does open himself up to questions about this presidential run, both publicly at press conferences that he you know has and, and appears at, and also behind the scenes trying to work people, uh, sources, as I'm sure many people are doing, to try to figure out what's going on here. It's hard, hard to convince everybody to reelect you if, in fact, they seem to think that you're going to ditch the job shortly thereafter. I would totally agree with you, yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably why we are seeing such a full-throated, um, I love my job, this is the job I was born to do, I'm focused on this job, this job alone. I think that's why we, we see him coming out today um, really talking about how much he loves being governor. Um, to really refocus people's attention on, I'm the governor, this is the job I'm running for re-election for. Um, he's not thinking or not publicly thinking about those, you know, 2024, 2028 plans. Uh, he wants people to really think about re-electing him next year. So he's uh, obviously a billionaire, but not even in the same league as Ken Griffin. Who do you think Ken Griffin is leaning towards any of the four declared Republican gubernatorial candidates? I, I'm not sure. You know, that's something that I'm trying to figure out as well. Um, I think that, if anything, King Griffin will sit out the primary and jump in, you know, and completely, you know, write whatever checks he needs to uh, for the person who wins the primary. Um, you know, we still have many months until, you know, the, the June 2022 primary. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, the field hasn't completely you know, filled out. I think that we could see a couple more people maybe jump in if they'd like to. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, uh, Ken Griffin would support the people who are currently in the race, but I think if push comes to shove, he might, um, meaning if one of these people wins the primary. Um, I think maybe he's doing the same kind of political calculus that the rest of us are doing, trying to figure out who would be a good candidate to really support. Yeah. Rachel Hinton, all of us here at WDLS, love reading you in the Sun-Times. I know you're moving over to the Better Government Association. Will, will we still read your work, I assume, because the BGA has a has a relationship with the Sun-Times, so I assume I can still read your work in the Sun-Times. Yes, yeah. Um, I, would, I would think absolutely you'll be able to still keep up with what I'm doing, with what I'm reporting, uh, both in the Sun-Times, WBZ, maybe the Tribune, uh, ProPublica, they have a lot of partnerships. Uh, they work with a lot of different people and also on the website. Um, and I, I think that there are things that they're trying to figure out with this role um, to make sure that people continue to, to keep up with the news and, and what they're doing and, and what I'll be doing too, ultimately. I'm reading that you're going to join the Better Government Association as its first enterprise reporter. That sounds uh, very Jimmy Olsenish. <laughs> You know, I'm going to just admit that I don't know who Jimmy Olsen is, but uh, <laughs> that's my age showing. Uh, Rachel, congratulations on the new gig. I hope you get a, a nicer parking spot than they gave you at the Sun-Times. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. We'll read more. Rachel Hinton joining us here on Double the Awesome. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. And reading from our next guest piece, which is both political and medical, uh, the Air Force removed 27 people for not obeying orders to get vaccinated against the Rona. This is the first dismissal in the U.S. military for those who have refused the shots. More than 94% of the Air Force is fully vaccinated, 
but tens of thousands of active active duty members all across all the services have declined the vaccinations, a show of defiance and a culture built around following orders. Many of them have sought exemptions. The first active duty Air Force members to be discharged over the Pentagon's vaccination requirements happened today, 27 people. That's the backstory. Now let's welcome uh, back to the, um, the show. He writes for the Washington Post. He's a national security reporter for the same. Alex Horton is here. Alex, I'm assuming that the ones dismissed today are relatively new members of the Air Force? They're all relatively new. Uh, the Air Force said they all have uh, fewer than six years uh, in service, which means uh, you know they're typically enlisted and maybe have just a few years in. Probably a bulk of them are, are in their first enlistment. Um, I asked about the composition of, of officer versus enlisted, and I'm still waiting to hear back on that, but we can assume, just given the stats, that they're probably mostly enlisted. How much warning did they have to get the vaccine or else? Well, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in August mandated the vaccine, um, but they were saying, you know, even before that, that the requirement was coming, and they were just waiting on Pfizer to be fully authorized uh, before they, they did the mandate. Before then, it was it was heavily encouraged. Now, since late August, it's been mandatory. Um, so they've had several months to to either uh, to either get it, to file an exemption if they wanted to, or just to you know get get ready and bear down for the refusal and the the consequences that came after. So these folks, all of them, had you know uh, a good amount of time to to consider it. So twenty seven now already in the Air Force, but it, in addition to that. There were 40 or so recruits that were told you must get vaccinated or you can't join, and they've washed out as well, correct? That's right, and, you know, in the process, it's a lot different. You know, everyone who's in the military now, depending on what service you're in, you know, the, the, uh, the deadlines are coming up for you or they've already passed in some cases. Um, but when it comes to people entering the military for the first time during this point, um, you can't get in without it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different threshold. So, you know, people are, are filing for exemptions, doing all these things. But at the start of the line, when you're trying to come into the military now, you know, you, you, you can't go through that process. They just simply will not let you in um, unless, you, unless you say you've got to get it. And if you turn it down while you're in training, then um, it's pretty easy at that point to, to kick people out. It's a much more simple process than people who are already in uniform. Talking to Alex Horton, he's the national security reporter for the Washington Post. Why am I hearing about the Air Force before the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps? So the Air Force set the most ambitious deadline for all their uh, folks to get vaccinated, um, for the active duty component anyway. Um, That was November 2nd. So they've had the longest before anyone else to uh, pass the deadline and then start the process of finding these folks, making sure they're not going to get it, and then starting the separation process. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it wasn't like November 3rd rolled around and people are out on the streets. It takes some time for for commands to report this. It takes some time for the administrative process to work itself out. Um, The Navy and the Marine Corps for active duty folks in those services, uh, their deadline was November 28th. So, you know, they're just now starting it, um, you know, the last couple of weeks. The Army, uh, which is the largest active duty service, uh, their deadline is tomorrow. So, you know, you can anticipate for each of them, it's going to, you know, it, it probably will take about as long as the Air Force did to start seeing these folks come out, you know, maybe about a month to six weeks uh, or longer after their respective deadlines. 
I'm assuming they must have approved some religious and medical exemptions, some waivers. The the Air Force has, uh, you know, to be frank, uh, a, a little bit of a frustrating system for me, anyway, for reporters who are asking about this. Um, every other service has broken out permanent medical exemptions, you know, something like you're allergic to a, a portion of the vaccine ingredients or something like that. Um, and there's temporary medical exemptions. So if you're if you're uh, pregnant and your doctor says, you know, they advise not to get it, or maybe you already have COVID right now and you're not supposed to get it uh, until you recover, um, those are some examples of temporary medical exemptions. The Air Force doesn't break them out like that. They just lump them all into medical exemptions. So, you know, they have a good number, but, you know, we don't know how many permanent ones they've handed out. Um, I believe uh, last time I checked, Marine Corps issued 12 permanent exemptions. Um, the Navy issued, uh, I think, six or seven. The Army has about, you know, less than a dozen. Um, but no service anywhere has issued a religious exemption. You know, thousands of people have requested them, um, and there have been zero granted anywhere. Um, we're, you know, we're expecting the Army to release their numbers of approvals and exemption requests this week. Um, but I expect and I predict that, you know, we're not going to see any religious exemptions granted. Either, there might be one or two at some point, but I think the takeaway here is this is an avenue that is absolutely allowed by the process and the guidelines that people feel like this infringes on their beliefs. They can file for it. Um, but it is also true that this is the only way that you can get an exemption and not have to prove it through medical means. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's sort of, it's, you know, sort of subjective. Yeah. Um, and, and none of the services I really filed or approved religious exemptions in several years for any kind of vaccine. So it's, it's not going to be handed out with any yeah. regularity. In the military, you're either all in or you're all out. I'm assuming that these are honorable discharges? Um, they're a mix. These, these folks in the Air Force right now are a mix of honorable discharges and general under honorable conditions. Um, the, the second one is typically if you have uh, you know some blemishes on your record, you know, nothing criminal, but maybe, you know, you got an Article 15 or something, or, you know, there's something, some kind of moment of misconduct. Uh, it, it sounds pretty close to honorable, but, you know, the fact is um, the VA can turn down your ability to get the GI Bill once you become a veteran. Um, so that that's a, I mean, I was in the Army. I, I, I used the GI Bill. I went to a, a private school and got a degree for free using the GI Bill. So, you know, this is a six-figure benefit that you could lose if you, you know, leave the military under these conditions. Hmm. And finally, I'm assuming there's some critics here, primarily Republican governors and attorneys general. Yeah, I mean, the most prominent one right now is in Oklahoma, where um, the governor said he has the sole authority to decide if the vaccine mandate applies to him and his guardsmen uh, while under state authority, uh, which is authority known as Title 32. Um, and said, you know, you can do what you want if these folks are put on federal orders, if they go into deployment, they go to airborne school, you know, you can make them get the vaccine. But when they're in the state of Oklahoma, I, what I say goes. And um, so he put that out and he even filed a lawsuit uh, with, with the Pentagon. And uh, Defense Secretary Austin said, nope, that is not the case. Every National Guardsman, even if they're operating under um, state orders, under the governor, are subject to this mandate. And if they don't uh, get the vaccine, then they don't go to drill, which is run by the, the state, but paid for by the federal government. Um, they won't get 
training and they won't get paid for it either. Um, so it, it's become a, a bit of a showdown at this point, but um, the Pentagon has asserted their authority saying, if you don't get it, you're out. I believe we live in the day and age of constant showdowns and drama. Alex Horton, thank you very much for your time, sir. I'm a subscriber to your uh, paper. You're the National Security Reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate for being it. a subscriber. Appreciate thanks. it. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.